Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read one more time the Beatitudes, and we're going to focus on the first four Beatitudes, the first four Beatitudes. So I'll read all the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 10, and then we'll focus on verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we come before you and we ask you that you would please pour out your spirit on us so that we can believe and hear and feel and trust and obey all that you've revealed to us. It's so glorious, Lord. Please teach us. Like Mary, let us sit at your feet and choose the better place. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that some things are only good for one thing? They're single purpose. They're only good for one use. Take the toaster. I was uh, looking at them. You can get a toaster anywhere from $12 at Target to $349 at Crate and Barrel, if you're so inclined. But no matter how much you pay for that toaster, it can only do one thing, toast bread. And when the toaster dies, no one says, I think I'll repurpose that as a doorstop. It's just in the garbage. The toaster is done the minute it can't toast. Now, not everything is like that. Many things we have around us every day have multiple purposes. Take the mighty tennis ball. You can obviously play tennis with it, but if you throw your back out playing tennis, the tennis ball is still your friend. There are loads of YouTube physical therapists ready to teach you how to ease back pain with a tennis ball. The uses for a tennis ball go way beyond tennis. Grandpa's walker works better with four tennis balls on the four legs. Parking in a small garage works better if you hang a tennis ball to guide you to where you are supposed to go. The tennis ball, unlike the toaster, is a multi-tool. It's multi-purpose. Now the reason I'm thinking about tools or items with multiple uses is because when I think about the Beatitudes, the blessings at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, 
I see words that serve multiple purposes. They punch above their weight. They get a lot done. They kill more than two birds with one stone. They're able to work in different directions in our souls all at the same time. They don't just do one thing. And of course, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, the greatest teacher who ever lived, would be able to speak such short, memorable, provocative phrases, and that those little phrases would be able to do more than one thing at a time in our souls. This morning, I want to suggest to you that there are three different ways, at least, that the Beatitudes work in our hearts. Let me give you them. Here they are. The Beatitudes console, they expose, and they encourage. I want us to see that as we explore the first four Beatitudes in verses three through six. They console, they expose, and at the same time, they encourage. How do they console? First of all, what is consolation? To console is to comfort someone in a time of grief or disappointment. A child who scrapes their knee is consoled by their mother's embrace. A wounded heart can be consoled by a half gallon of ice cream and a favorite song on repeat. Last week we saw that the Beatitudes describe Christians as they are, and just by describing Christians as they are, they begin to console us. Believers are poor in spirit. It's believers who mourn over their sin. It's believers who are meek. It's believers who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's believers who, like Jesus, are acquainted with much sorrow and much grief. It's us who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and it's us who are reviled on account of Jesus. That's us. And what the Sermon on the Mount does, it takes all this loss. Nobody wants to be poor, let alone poor in spirit. Nobody wants to mourn, let alone mourn over their own failures. It takes all of this difficult and disappointing and discouraging experience and it reinterprets it for us. It calls us to label that blessed, not because we're playing a mental head game with ourselves or trying to trick ourselves, but because we really are. We really are under God's smile. We really are approved by God when we are seeing those characteristics formed in our soul. The bruised reed, he doesn't break. He smiles on it. He delights in all of the sorrows and griefs and difficulties and hungers that he sees in the saints. And by calling us blessed, he consoles us so that we don't become discouraged or despondent in the midst of all the difficulties that he's really allowing to be formed in our soul. Of course, that's just review. We said that last week, and so we won't spend that much time there, but I'll just mention that, that the first thing the Beatitudes do is they console us. They console us. But they also expose us, don't they? They expose us. Just by being in Jesus' presence and hear him pronounce a blessing on poverty of spirit, and mourning, and meekness, and hunger, 
If you've got even a self, one self-reflective bone in your body, this party is going to go, that's not what I naturally think of as blessed. That's not usually how I count myself as blessed. Are any of us as poor in spirit as we ought to be? In a culture of glibness and constant entertainment, are any of us as full of mourning over sin as we ought to be? Of course we're not. And a careful combing through the Beatitudes will help us by exposing us, but by showing us what's really going on in our hearts. And for some of you who are not Christians, this may be your first real exposure to what heart Christianity looks like. We may have thought of Christianity, or you may have thought of Christianity as certain rules, or maybe certain traditions, but here in the Beatitudes we see that true Christianity works in our hearts in such a way that it creates a real spiritual poverty and mourning and meekness and hunger. It's not some rigid legalism out to condemn the whole world. It's a brokenness that comes from an encounter with the one who was broken for our sins. So first let's notice that Jesus says God's smile is on the poor in spirit. Let's walk through these Beatitudes and see how they expose us. Notice that Jesus says in verse 3, God's smile, God's approval is on those who are poor in spirit. D.A. Carson said it best when he described the poor in spirit as the spiritually bankrupt. The poor in spirit person is not having trouble making ends meet. They have nothing. If you came up to them at gunpoint and said, produce your righteousness, they would empty out their pockets and there would be nothing there. It's a spiritual bankruptcy. It's a spiritual poverty that's more than the emptiness that drives many to see a therapist. This is actually a powerlessness and a guilt you feel when you realize you can't stop sinning and you're guilty for each and every sin. This is important. Many people today feel an emptiness, but their emptiness never rises above sort of an angst that they're just a meaningless microbe in the universe. True poverty of spirit is what comes on a soul when they've understood God and God's standards and God's law. And in the words of Romans 3, their mouths have been stopped. They got nothing to say, no defenses to make. No, 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 but, but I, but I, deep down inside, I. There's none of that for the one who's poor in spirit. So let me ask you this. Have you ever become poor in spirit? Let me tell you one clear indicator that will help you know if you're growing and being poor in spirit. You will pray desperate, continual, beggarly prayers. The word translated poor in spirit, according to R. Kent Hughes, denotes, quote, a poverty so deep that the person must obtain his living by begging. 
He cannot survive without the help of someone from the outside. The person who's poor in spirit will be leaning on God and pleading with God, praying without ceasing for help from God. Oh, there may be many in the church who know the problems of God's people, but they don't know the humble mark of someone who senses their own spiritual poverty, their own spiritual need. Do you pray like a man or a woman who has nothing good in them at all except what God produces? That's a mark of growing in the poverty of spirit. And it's what lights up the smile of God. It's what's blessed to actually know you've got nothing is what's blessed by God. The next beatitude that exposes us is in the phrase, blessed are those who mourn. This is important. Poverty of spirit is not just a doctrinal truth. I know I'm totally depraved. I know in me there is no good thing. Poverty of spirit has an emotional impact on our souls. And we're immature to the point that it hasn't had an emotional impact on our souls. When God moved to expose his people's sin in Ezra's day, it says Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. He was not merely reciting his sin, or if you've ever watched a kids apologize to each other, or maybe on a bad day you've seen yourself apologize to someone like this, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is a mark it hasn't gone deep, that it hasn't really flowed from a poverty of spirit, that there's been no tears shed over what's actually happened, the sin that's actually present in our souls. In Jeremiah's day, there's this prophecy that I believe pertains to the new covenant. It's a prophecy about today. And in Jeremiah 31, it says, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. So the way God leads people to Jesus is not dry-eyed. The way God leads people to Jesus is not, near, not merely an intellectual pursuit. It's an actual conviction of sin that creates a mourning in the soul. Some of us have seen believers weep over the loss of a child. Or we've seen believers weep in their infertility. But rarely do we see believers weeping those kinds of tears over sin, over loss of righteousness. And yet, in the book of James, believers are called proactively to cultivate these kind of tears. We're not to regard it as unusual or strange. We're called to cultivate these kinds of tears. Listen to James. And if your parents' children have ever talked to you about worldliness, they've said, hey, the movies you're interested in, the songs you're looking at, they're, they're, they're glorifying all the pleasures of this world. They're setting your heart on the pleasures of this world. Uh, sometimes I would say uh, to kids I knew as I talked to them about music, you realize that if I ever did the things they're talking about in that song, it would ruin our family. 
in light of that worldliness that can be there, what does James say? James says that tears are the appropriate reaction. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. James 4, 8 through 10. When was the last time you wept over your sins? When was the last time I wept over my sins? I fear that my generation of pastors have not emphasized this enough. You know, I had the privilege of being trained for ministry at a time when there was a great reclamation of church practices and biblical principles that make healthy churches. I had the privilege of starting my ministry, focusing on building the structures in the church that that make for health qualified elders, servant-hearted deacons, biblical church membership, membership that's actually born again, church discipleship through expository preaching, All of these things are good. I hope to pass every one of them on to every pastor I ever get to influence in my life. But you could see how you could build all of those structures without cultivating the heart of the Beatitudes and of the Sermon on the Mount. You can have elders and deacons who do not weep You can send out missionaries who don't mourn over sin. You can have congregations who say the gospel, but do not weep over the gospel. Or when they discipline those who depart from the gospel, there's faithfulness, but not tearfulness. Emmanuel, is our discipleship marked by tears? And if we were to see, and if your, if your answer is no, well, if we were to see some major area of church life that we were out of line with, let's say we had unqualified elders or didn't practice biblical church membership, what would we do? It would be top priority to remedy that problem. And so in our prayer closets and in our prayer rooms, in our private devotions and in our GCGs, shouldn't there be a continual prayer request? Lord, let us know the blessedness of those who mourn and keep us from the cursedness of those who walk through life only laughing. The third blessing Jesus pronounces on us is a blessing on the meek. A blessing on the meek. What is meekness? I believe it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who pointed out that meekness is the attitude we have towards others when we genuinely feel poverty of spirit towards God. That is, when you vertically really feel impoverished before God, then horizontally you stop being a condemning tyrant and you start being a tearful fellow sinner. In other words, the one who mourns over their sin before God will hardly be an ogre towards others. Experiencing the grace of God, it turns out, does not make you a tyrant like the devil, but gentle and lowly like Jesus. 
Gentle is actually the word that's often used to translate this ESV word that we have as meekness. Many translations go either way. It's much the same idea, to be meek, to be gentle. Again, Kent Hughes says the most helpful things I've found on this beatitude. He says this, understand first that meekness is not weakness. It does not denote cowardice or spinelessness or timidity or the willingness to have peace at all costs. Neither does meekness suggest indecisiveness, wishy-washiness, or a lack of confidence. Meekness does not imply shyness or a withdrawn personality. As contrasted with that of an extrovert. Nor can meekness to be reduced to mere niceness. Okay, so we've cleared away all the things meekness isn't. What is it? Hughes continues, bearing this in mind, we must note that the Greek word's development, the word for meekness, in classical literature and its other uses in the New Testament absolutely confirm the popular translation of meek and gentle. In classical Greek, listen to this, the word that's, that's translated meekness was used to describe tame animals, soothing medicine, a mild word, and a gentle breeze. He writes, it's a word with a caress in it. Meekness is strength under control. The meek person is strong. He's gentle. He's mild. She's in control. Strong as steel, but gentle. Are you gentle? Are you meek? Are you simply cold, hard steel? For truth, of course. Or velvet steel? One of the areas where, I've, where I'm often called the minister into your lives deeply is in marriages. Of course, not all of God's people are called to be married, but many are. And one of the things I've seen repeatedly in my own marriage, in the marriages of Emmanuel, is a lack of meekness. We'd say, I'm a sinner totally depraved, under the wrath of God. I hate my sin. I'm saved by grace and grace alone. At the same time, husbands are often exacting, harsh, irritable, legal, angry, bitter, distant, cold, and domineering to the other sinner in their marriage. Exactly the opposite of the blessed life Jesus is calling us into. And many wives are irritable, judgmental, self-righteous, bitter, angry, critical, implacable, unable to be appeased, are you meek? Do you and I speak with caresses? 
Men, if we can't couple gentleness with masculinity, it's our definition of masculine that needs to change. Sisters, if you can't pair womanhood with meek and gentle, it's your definition of womanhood that needs to change. The Beatitudes expose us, don't they? They're like open-heart surgery. You can make an outward show of we're a biblical family with talk of headship and submission, but the whole thing smells more like the devil than the aroma of Christ if it's not perfumed with Christ's own meekness. If we pursue lives of meekness and gentleness, we will know and feel more of the smile of God. Finally this morning, in terms of exposing us, we hear the blessing pronounced on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God's work in our heart makes us hungry to see righteousness prevail. And not just any standard of righteousness, but the righteousness outlined for us in the scriptures. That's what we want to see. His righteous kingdom come on earth, in my heart, in this church, in this culture, on earth, as it is in heaven. When God saves us and changes us, we become hungry for change in our souls. And it's not just that we want ease or balance or prosperity or even significance. We want to do what is right and right according to God's word. Now, I wonder if you've thought much about this, if you've looked ahead in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've seen the commands that are coming. I mean, they are daunting. They're so daunting that some interpreters come along and say, they're not even for this age. If anyone says, do you walk one mile, walk with them too. When someone says, give me your cloak, you give them your tunic as well. No oaths, just mean what you say. No divorce, except in the most extreme situations. This is a high and exalted standard. What's your reaction to the idea of thinking about that for months? How does the prospect of months of sermons about that strike you? We're at our best when we say, I'm hungry for it. I want that righteousness. Christ has given me his righteousness. He's clothed me in his righteousness. But he always does that at the same time as he gives us a new heart. And what is that new heart? It hungers and thirsts for his righteousness. We saw last week, right? that our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, that doesn't mean that the rest of our Christian life is misery. Oh, I gotta be more righteous. It means that you're being fed with exactly what you were hungry for. Every Christian, in the words of Romans 6, is a slave to righteousness. What does that mean? It means that when you veer away from righteousness, you will invariably come back because you are just bound to it from the new heart put in you by God's Holy Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus. That's who you are. And it's our food to do his will. Now, we've been seeing in these first four Beatitudes how they expose us. It's a multi-tool. They, they console us. They expose us. But they also encourage us. They also encourage us. I think it's particularly amazing. I was hoping I would be able to communicate this to you as clearly and as succinctly as I can, but, but here's the deal. 
the, there's a promise attached to each beatitude. That's one of the structure. Blessed are the, and then a, kind, a, a, a piece of Christian character, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Blessed are the, and why are they blessed? Because something's coming to them. Because there is a promise that's been made to them. But I want you to notice that Jesus did not just say, throw out a little piece of Christian character and then tack on a Christian promise at the end. But the Christian promise at the end of each beatitude is the one custom fit for that particular aspect of Christian character. Blessed are the poor in heart. They'll see God. Blessed are the hungry for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Each promise is tailored like a glove to the hand of Christian character that's earlier in each beatitude. And what I think is amazing about that is it's an indication that each of those promises, follow me here, helps us fight the temptation to leave the character. We're all tempted not to be poor in spirit. I'm sick of feeling like I'm empty. I was cool for a little while, had a little born again experience. It's getting a little old now, not having the resources to deal with life on my own. I don't wanna mourn again. But each of the promises is actually tailored to that character quality in such a way that it helps us press on in pursuing that character. Let me spell this out. Let me explain to you exactly what I mean. Our Father smiles, verse 3, on poverty of spirit. But how does poverty of spirit make us feel? When we feel poor, we feel insecure. When you're in a room of people who you think are morally better than you, how do you feel? This is often what happens in new Christians. Why don't they want to go to church? They walk in, they're like, everyone here's got their act together. I'm a total mess. The crazy part is you want to walk around and go, everybody feels like that. <laughs> how do you feel when you're in a room full of people smarter than you? Very few people enjoy that. There's very few of us so humble that we're like, I can't wait to glean all the knowledge. <laughs> How do you feel when you're the only powerless person in a group and everyone around you is pulling big strings, making big decisions? We feel insecure. We feel insecure. And when we feel insecure, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to disobey Jeremiah 9.23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. What are we tempted to do when we feel insecure? Get some money, get some power, get something you know something about. This is one of the reasons why men only hang out with men who know the same things as they do. I think they, they think that guys who know other stuff are losers. It's just insecure pride. It's why moms don't like to hang out with moms who don't do parenting exactly the same way they do. Something about finding out that other mom used an essential oil instead of a prescription drug 
just makes them utterly insecure. They wither. Often when we don't have what everyone else has, when we're poor where everyone else is rich, we feel insecure. But to the poor in spirit, Jesus says, you have a kingdom. And not just any kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. He promises us security. A citizenship in a secure kingdom. We've just watched the death of a monarch who reigned 70 years. And the whole world's a little weak in the knees. You're part of a kingdom where the sovereign never dies. You could be around people who are smarter than you and have more power than you and have more money than you all your life and all you gotta do is walk in there being poor in spirit and faithful and you will be grounded in your possession of his kingdom. Now the kingdom of heaven is actually all of the promises of the Beatitudes are actually kingdom of heaven promises. If you look at the first Beatitude, the promise is the kingdom of heaven. If you look at the last Beatitude, the promise again is the kingdom of heaven kind of indicating that all the promises in between are just kingdom of heaven promises. The kingdom of heaven is where you receive mercy, are satisfied with righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is where you're declared a child of God. But look how the next beatitude is answered in a very encouraging way by the promise that's attached to it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now why... Why don't we want to press on in mourning? It's painful. Discouraging. Depressing. Most people when they mourn feel condemned. They mourn over their own sins. They don't feel liberated. They feel condemned. And there can be a, a pulling back from mourning because if I plunge myself into mourning, I might as well be signing up for days in bed full of condemnation, despair, discouragement, and darkness. And Jesus, no, 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 that won't happen. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Look at the man in Luke chapter 18, I think it is, who beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, I tell you, that man and not the other self-righteous one, went home justified, declared righteous. The one who mourned gets comforted. There's nothing to fear. Many of us, we get accused of sin, and what do we do? We bristle, we deflate. There's no need. If a true sin has been pointed out in you, and you own it and acknowledge it, even with tears, what awaits you is comfort. If you cry all night, the psalm says joy comes in the morning. If you cry through your whole life, like the Son of God did, Revelation tells us he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Amen. Then notice this beatitude. It says, blessed are the meek. Well, what temptations come to the meek? Well, we're all afraid that if we're gentle and let the bullies move around, we're gonna miss out, right? Why do we get angry? 
Because if we don't get angry, the righteousness of God will not be established. Stop it! Even though James tells us the righteousness of man does not accomplish, sorry, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But when you're meek, there's a a fear that you're going to get steamrolled, left at the back of the line, lost in sales because you weren't cheating like the other guy. And to that, what does Jesus say? Oh, no, no, no. You're not going to miss out on anything. You're going to inherit the planet. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God made this promise to Abraham. He said, he said, follow me, Abraham, and I will lead you to a land. But it turned out that land he was promising, the promised land, was just an appetizer of what he was really promising. It was just a shadow of what he's really promising because it tells us in Romans chapter four that Abraham was promised he would be the heir of the entire world. And these Beatitudes are saying to you, believer, that promise to Abraham is coming to you. You're like, I might miss out until I inherit Asia. Right? No believer. Let's say your obedience to Christ gets you crucified. Devoid of even breath in your lungs and even a piece of real estate the size of a cross in the earth. You will come to inherit everything. So press on in meekness. It, and it alone, is rewarded with Christ's gracious promise. Finally, look at this one. Blessed are those who hunger and, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who long for righteousness will be satisfied. 27 years ago, when I was 21 years old, God gave me a heart for righteousness. Before he saved me, I actively hungered and schemed and enjoyed sin. And since that time, I have hungered for righteousness. I haven't always accomplished righteousness. Haven't always lived out of that hunger, but it is undying. I can't make it go away. When I was 27, I began to pastor this church, and my heart has been to lead this congregation in the righteousness of all of God's commandments. And in there is that time, there's been many trophies of grace, but there have been great losses to righteousness as well. Many have left the faith left off following his righteous commandments. On top of that, many of the leaders who led this generation have fallen away. I saw a popular book on pastoral ministry the other day and many on the names of the back, the men who were telling us this was such a great book, and apparently it is a great book. Nonetheless, those men have now fallen from the ministry. The culture around us continues to spiral in moral decay. Righteousness is eroding. The sins of racism and sexism, well, we fight those with sinful ideologies of radical feminism and critical theory. 
The sinful ideologies of feminism and critical theory? Well, people fight those with anger and mockery. The world, and far too often the church, is awash in porn. Marriages that have received all kinds of gospel medicine don't always get better. And on top of this, my own sin clings so close to this very day. My friends who sought the Lord by building families biologically and through adoption now often feel their children's disobedience and sometimes apostasy. Other friends who went overseas to do missions with high hopes to reach the nations have returned disillusioned by the sin and ineptness they've seen in leadership of missions organizations across the world. All of this makes you just want to throw in the towel. Why be so insistent on righteousness? Doesn't seem like anyone else cares. Doesn't seem like I care on my worst days. Still, there's this hunger. And I need the promise that's going to be satisfied. It's tempting to give up. The darkness can seem so pervasive that it can be tempting to throw in your lot with the devil to soften your stances against sin, to descend from the fresh winds of faith to the dark fog of cynicism. It's tempting to live in the first two stanzas of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. You know that song? I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiars carol play. And mild and sweet, their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. What will keep the hungry Christian from starving to death? What will keep the hungry Christian from leaving off the path of righteousness? This promise, you will be satisfied. There, there will come a day where cynicism dies, where sarcasm against sin, cold-hearted sarcasm, dies. There will come a day where you will inherit, according to Peter, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where everybody does the right thing all the time, and so do you. John promised it. And I'll leave you with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Emmanuel, press on towards Christ. He's saved you. And the character he's cultivating in you, though painful, will be so richly rewarded that it won't even be worth comparing the sufferings of this age to what he brings to you. Unbelieving friend, what the world calls blessed is not blessed. Prosperity and ease and laughing all the time are what the Bible says leads to damnation. But there's a blessedness that's promised in Christ and can be yours if you'll trust his death on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners. Won't you trust him and be blessed this morning and forever? Let's pray. Father, we come before you We praise you and thank you for your good word, your consoling word, your exposing word, your encouraging word. Or would you build your people and make us really a beautiful and blessed people? And Lord God, would you bring those who are not your people into the blessing that's found in Christ? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.